Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al-Samad, and we're not dead, and your feed is not broken. Correct. Not yet, anyway. So it's been a little while, but you were busy. You were out in L.A. before it caught on fire. Yeah, and- it's, it's, you know, it's, it's hard for us to record when we're on opposite coasts, because we, we do this late in the evening, and... You know, usually when I'm traveling, especially on the West Coast, uh, you know, for when, it, when it's 10 o'clock here for Dan, you know, it'll be seven o'clock for me. And I'm usually right in the middle of stuff because I'm usually, you know, with companies doing something. And, you know, so I'm usually having some fancy dinner somewhere. And it's also like a couple of weeks to Christmas now. So the year is winding down. Everybody's trying to get everything finished. It's a really busy time. So, yeah, so, so that that's Dan's way of saying he had a bunch of projects to do that kept us from doing this over the weekend. Yeah, and I'm kind of ignoring some things right now <laughs> to, to do this one. But this is so much more important because it absolutely is the people they need us. Yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, we, I mean, you went out. I was gonna. We're, we'll get to what we're driving, but you actually. Um, you went all you did like the grand tour of uh of L.A. while you were out there. Oh, man, I I did so. I I had. Uh, three three different flights uh, three different round trip flights in the last week and a half i went to la and then while i was in la i bopped up to san francisco for a day and then back to la that night and then i was back out in the bay area um earlier this week uh when uh, i flew out on sunday uh and then uh, went up to petaluma to uh shoot a, a spot with uh, uh leo laporte from t- the twit network uh uh, with the new 2018 Nissan Leaf, which we'll talk about later. And that's going to be on this weekend's uh, new screensavers show. And then uh, Leo also had me on the panel for the, the Twitch show this week in tech, which is which was an amazing experience with Leo and Christina Warren and Brianna Wu. Uh, and it was a it was a lot of fun. And if you haven't seen that, I'll put the link in the uh, um, in the uh, show notes. And uh, it, it was episode 643. And it was it was a lot of fun to do. Episode six. 6 43 that's yes. so many episodes i mean we well, we had the autoblog podcast for uh, what 13 almost almost yeah. 13 years now yeah, well, started but, in early 2005 right and i was just gonna say i think um i was all excited to try to do something for autoblog podcast number 500 and i just like i, I didn't make it <laughs> um, <laughs> but that was another one like i think we all started we picked that up in 2007, I think we wound up as as the the crew on that show. Yeah, maybe 2006, there. something like yeah, that. Yeah, well, yeah. It, I mean, the, the Autoblog podcast started originally started in I think in late 05 or early 06, and went for about a year and a half, and then went on hiatus for a while before you and and Shunk and I picked it up and and ran with it again, and uh, it's kept going ever since. Yeah, that's just. Uh... At least in some form or another. Yeah, I mean they're still going. They're, yeah. I guess they're taking a break for the holiday, which I mean they're allowed to do that. So, well, we um, already had our break, so let's uh, let's dive into this. Yeah, all right. So you were driving while you were out there, besides the Leaf, which we'll get to, uh, but you had the the CX five, and this is not the um, CX five that we all kind of fell in love with a few years ago. This is this is a new CX five. 
Yeah. So this was the, the, the 2018 CX-5, which we actually debuted last year at the LA Auto Show uh, and uh, went on sale uh, a few months ago here in the U.S. Um, and it, in a few more months, it'll actually be available uh, finally with uh, a diesel engine, uh, a new 2.2 liter diesel engine that Mazda has developed uh, and is hopefully finally close to being certified. Uh, but in the meantime, it's available now with uh, a 2.5 liter gas engine. And uh, it basically takes everything we loved about the original CX-5 and just makes it a little better. I mean, it's all the all the qualities of the original are still there. And um, it's, uh, you know, it still drives great. And, you know, like other modern Mazdas, it has a really nice interior, really well executed interior, especially given the price point. Uh, so it's it's a fantastic vehicle. Well, styling wise, they brought it more in line with the CX-9, which is very handsome. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like they've kind of. um smoothed it out a little bit, you know, the design language. So it's still, you know, the same kind of Kodo design language they've been using for the, the last generation of cars, but it's, you know, a little more refined, um, you know, and looks a little more premium, a little more upscale. And, you know, they've taken this, you know, at the LA show, they showed the updated 2018 Mazda 6 sedan as well, you know, it takes on some of those same qualities. Yeah. And the, I mean, the six is a, it's a beautiful car. Here's the issue I have with both the CX-5 and, and the, the six. Um, I wind up forgetting them a lot and I don't, I don't mean to because I actually really like them. And I like that Mazda is a, a company that is passionate about cars that drive well. Um, they're sort of, they're passionate about the things that we're passionate about. And, and I, I think that's wonderful. But when people ask me about cars in particular segments where Mazda has an offering, I kind of always forget to mention that there's a Mazda until like 10 minutes later. And I'm like, oh yeah, there's a Mazda there. That's actually like all the other things I suggested. Just, just try the Mazda. Cause it See, all there, that's where, that's where you and I differ because I usually start with the Mazda. If okay. there's a Mazda in the segment that they're interested in that the Mazdas and Hondas are usually where I start. And then, you know, it goes off from there. So maybe I'll just start forcing myself to think, is there a Mazda in this segment? Because they offer cars that are really good and yeah. I don't want there to not be good cars. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, the, the, the driving dynamics of the CX five, you know, in the, uh, among, among compact crossovers, you know, it probably has, I, I would say it arguably has the best driving dynamics of any of them that are on the, you know, and especially of mainstream models that are out there right now, you know, it's got a really, um, Really, you know, a really uh, supple ride, you know, so it, it it absorbs bumps really well, but it, it's it's got great body control, um, you know, nice tight steering. You know, it's 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 what we've come to expect of Mazda, you know, and it, it, it all fits in with that tagline of theirs that driving matters, you know, and, you know, Mazda will probably be one of the last brands we see adopt automated driving systems um, just because they, you know, they they're they want to build cars for people that actually want to drive them and i i applaud that and you know sadly you know that's a, a diminishing part, portion of the population <laughs> but you know it's just the way it is but you know hopefully uh they'll be able to to stick it out there you know and you know with their relationship with toyota now you know where toyota took a stake in mazda and mazda has got a small shareholding in toyota and they're they're sharing some technology hopefully that will uh, be enough to to help them survive and and thrive going forward for for many years to come. Yeah, well, once all the automatons are 
I, I was going to say off the road, but I guess it's actually on the road. Um, but they're not driving and they're not hogging the left lane. Right. There's maybe the the ones who ma- make it through this gap, right? Uh, by by saying, no, we're we're a traditional um, vehicle. Uh, there'll be a resurgence because there'll be one of the few left and there'll be a core group of people that still wants that if it's legal. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe instead of, you know, having dedicated lanes on the road for autonomous vehicles, maybe instead what we need is dedicated lanes on the road for Mazdas and, and sure. other similar vehicles. I'm sure you could sell dedicated lanes on the road to the highest bidder without any problem. Um, I doubt that Mazda would actually be the winner there, but yeah. Yeah, well, what? But you know, we can give it a shot. Yeah. So, so it drove, it drove well. Save the manuals. We can we can give a lane to Mazda. Can you actually? Can you? That's actually a good question. Can you get the CX five with them? Because you used to be able to get it with a manual. Can you still get it with uh, the two point two? No. Yeah. no, not not anymore. Uh, it's automatics only now. Um, but you know. What are you going to do? You got to you got to sell what customers are going to buy. And, you know, so that means more and more crossovers and various types of, you know, various various flavors of utilities. Um, and, you know, and, you know, arguably, you know, those could be even considered the modern station wagon. You know, we'll, we'll get into that a little more. But, yeah, um, you know, r- right now, you know, the 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 CX-5, you know, if if what you're interested in is a compact crossover, with a really nicely executed interior, you know, a, a, you know, great, great driving qualities. Um, you really can't do a whole lot better than the, the, uh, the CX five, you know, the, the one flaw in the ointment <clears throat> is that, uh, it doesn't support Android auto and Apple CarPlay yet. Um, so you're, you know, you still have, you know, the standard, uh, Mazda interface, which granted is not a bad interface. But I was just going to say, it's, it's not terrible. Of them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, they do, it has a touchscreen, but it also has a central controller, you know, like an iDrive MMI style controller on the center console, which actually makes it quite easy to, um, you know, to, to get, you know, precise control, uh, you know, and you can, you can flick back and forth through the menus very quickly. Um, you know, with that, you know, without having to reach out, you know, I mean, you can do it with your finger on the screen, but you know, then you just get fingerprints all over the screen. It's much better to just use the knob. Yeah. Well, and it, it's a, another lesson that we've, we've seen Mazda to sort of pick up some of the lessons from the Germans. Um, you know, they, they, they build sort of modern executions of what you'd find in like BMWs in, and Audis in, the eighties and nineties, in my opinion, yeah. like um, if, if you really liked your E36, you'll, you'll like a Mazda six. Um, the infotainment system in the cars is kind of limited. And I think that that's, that's good because it makes it streamlined to use because it, it doesn't have like, it doesn't have the fingerprint recognition kind of thing. It, it does have a couple of ways to input uh, or to provide inputs, which is, is smart. Um, but I, I think that, Using that system is a really good lesson in how you make it do less and it works better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, aside from the the one time, you know, several years ago when I was first driving a current generation Mazda 3, when the system actually crashed on me while I was driving down the road. Um, uh, other than that, I've I've never really had a problem with it. It's always been fairly responsive and and reliable. Yeah, I've had systems crash. I can't remember uh, what 
what crashed on me most recently, I think it was actually the, the Uconnect in my, my own Jeep, but I've had other systems in other automakers' cars crash as well. It's, and it's weird because they just like freeze up and you know, like keep hitting the thing and it's like, nope, well, nope, it, nope. In the in the case of what happened in the, the three uh, several years ago, it was uh, it actually just reset itself. It started from scratch. It, re- it rebooted the whole system. That's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, <laughs> you see the little like C colon prompt and uh, anyway. uh, well, no, it wasn't. It didn't go that far. I mean, it came came up with the the Mazda splash screen. Oh, so you you don't see it. There's no command line. It's all hidden behind the it wasn't splash. wasn't quite that bad. Yeah, well, I'm you know if let's just move on because I don't want to yeah. start talking about putting these things. Yeah, so in what did you drive? Mode. So I had a couple of things. I had the 2017 uh, Hyundai Ionic um, Hybrid. There's a couple of different flavors of Ionic, so I had the hybrid, and it it came right after I had a Prius Prime, so it was a really good kind of combination to have, to have one and then the other. And the Ionic is is a very direct assault on the Prius territory. Um, it has that highly optimized aero shape. It's a dedicated model in the lineup. Um, it it just it's following the Prius playbook pretty closely. Uh, and it's, but it's not a except Prius. for one minor detail. And, and what's that? It's not hideous. That's true. It, <laughs> it, and that's actually, you know, a good point is the, the Ionic is, a, a dedicated hybrid that doesn't have that kind of weird to it. It's just, it's a dedicated hybrid that just isn't, is a normal car. And you can actually get down with it if you like cars too. Um, where the Prius, it's a, I liked the Prius, um, the Prius Prime especially, but it's it's harder to love from a, a pure like dynamic standpoint. It's 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 better, but it's still it's a Prius. And it was interesting because I praised the the Prius Prime for its its dynamics the last episode. Uh, the Ionic is much better. It feels sharper. It um, is is more disciplined, and it's, it's ride and body motions. It it actually feels sportier, which is is a really interesting contrast because it's, it's not all that sporty. <laughs> but it it does it does feel that way. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it's got you know it's got pretty tight you know uh, handling characteristics. You know, good good ride quality, um, and the the nature of the powertrain in the Ionic. You know, because they're using uh, a 1.6 liter uh, GDI paired uh, paired with um, a uh, dual clutch transmission, a six speed dual clutch transmission, or is it seven? It's, I don't. It's, I don't know. But either way, it's that, a dual clutch transmission. Right. You know, so it doesn't have. You never get that. Um, even when the engine's running, you don't get that motoring you know, the the motor boating feel that you get with a Prius. You know, so you don't it, because it's a step. A, a, traditional step ratio transmission you know as you accelerate you know when the engine's on you you feel the revs climb and then it shifts gears and you know climbs again and climbs again um you know so it doesn't just go up and stay at one constant speed and drone there until you yeah. until the vehicle catches up well it's interesting that is one of the things that i've really really liked more about the ionic i like that that's it's a big deal. It makes a huge difference. It's just, it feels more refined. Maybe it's to me because it's what I'm used to, but you don't have the engine sort of wailing away. Um, and the priest isn't bad again, but when you get in, in the Ionic that just does it a different way, it's, it's an interesting contrast, I suppose. Um, and I really found that the Ionic did it the way that 
you know, more quote unquote normal cars do it. And I found that to be a lot more pleasing. It just feels better tuned um, uh-huh. overall. And the biggest difference besides the mechanical stuff, which uh, was really pleasant to drive um, is the ergonomics. Like the Prius prime has terrible ergonomics. It has that damn screen <laughs> and stuff like there's a, there, there's a shifter, like a real shifter in this car, in the Ionic. There's like buttons for HVAC. There's, it's just so much, much there's, easier to use. There's a, an instrument cluster where it's supposed to be in front of yeah. the driver. And yeah. then, you know, a normal center screen uh, with, uh, you know, that actually does support Apple Android auto and CarPlay. So, yeah. And, and Hyundai, um, a Hyundai infotainment is, is good. And it, yeah, it's much even, even the, even the stock system, even if you don't use your smartphone, the stock system is, is one of the better systems out there. Yeah. Um, so, and, and you know, it's a hatchback, it's roomy. It was well appointed cause I had the, the limited. So <laughs> it's a pretty nice car. Um, the one fly in the ointment i think we used that phrase before in the podcast so it's stuck in my head but anyway the one sort of sticking point was i did not get the fuel economy um that it it said that i would be getting which was a little disappointing what did you get i got about 40 i want to say like 43 it was mid 40s mid to low 40s um and it's supposed to get like 58 combined so that felt a little off um and I, I think that's been sort of a consistent criticism of the Ionic from from other quarters, uh, you know, other corners of the Internet, which is everything there is true. So, I, you know, of course. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, what what could possibly you know, who would say anything un, un, untruthful on the Internet? Yeah. Um, but I, I did get like 52 out of the uh, OK, out of the Ionic. Uh, you know, was, was the temperature particularly cold this week? When you had no, it? I mean, it, it sort of fluctuated. I, it might have been just uh, maybe I was driving it like an animal because it's not that bad to drive. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so, OK, I, it's one of those things like it was just curious to me because, you know, I, I'll get in a Prius. And that's the one thing I will say for the Prius is like you get in it. It doesn't matter how you drive it. It hits that window sticker number from from my experience. It, that is true. It, it does. It does do a remarkably good job of tuning out whatever the driver does and gets, <laughs> gets whatever, whatever, As, it's, yeah. whatever it's set up to do. Um, and I found it's it's sport mode was actually uh, really pretty good or like, you know, because you could bat the shifter over to like S mode and get a little bit more responsive, but responsiveness out of it. This is this is a, a hybrid that you can drive and enjoy driving because it's good to drive not because you're some sort of like smug uh gas sipping conspicuous consumption conservationist <laughs> um, it's it's i mean it's a good car uh, yeah. i do i do wonder how well they're gonna do against the priest it has such a head start about being this this unique thing um yeah but they have the opportunity here so they they can they can try to push it uh well, yeah, and you know the the interesting thing that you know Hyundai uh, Hyundai Motor Group uh, actually, because including Kia, did is they developed you know this um, uh, this platform specifically for electrified models. So they have the uh, the Ionic available as currently as both a hybrid and um, a battery electric model, at least in some states. And then there's also um, a plug-in hybrid that uh, should be launching right about now. 
which you know basically is the the regular hybrid but with a bigger battery and a, and a plug you know to get you about 27 miles of electric range uh all electric range and then the same thing goes for the um for the Nero, you know, which is same vehicle, but with a quote unquote crossover body style, uh, which is actually more of a slightly tall station wagon. But again, we'll get to we'll get, get to, back that. to that later. Um, and I actually I did sort of make a mental note. I of the the between the Nero and the Ionic, I liked the Ionic better. I thought it's just a better use of the platform. It's more it's car like and, and um, you know, you can go back and forth about which you like better. Uh, it kind of doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, like pick the one you think looks better. I don't, I don't know. Um, but uh, yeah. And but if, if you look at the sales numbers, you know, the reality is the, uh, the, or the, the Nero is actually selling quite a bit better. Yeah. So uh, that's fine. I'm sure Hyundai doesn't really care or Hyundai, Hyundai motor group. You're saying, uh, well, yeah, Hyundai motor, you know, the parent company probably doesn't care so much, but uh, I think, you know, the, the executives at Hyundai, yeah, because the Hyundai Motor, you know, their their marketing team, you know, is separate from the Kia marketing team, and oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, so they 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 are quite competitive with each other. Yeah, well, they can have their sibling rivalry. Either way, they have they have a decent set of hardware to to work from. Um, and the other thing I was driving uh, last week, because this was two weeks ago, I had the the Ionic. Um, I was driving a Mitsubishi Outlander SEL, um, and you know, Mitsubishi's in this tough spot. Uh, they don't get a ton of respect, but I actually found like it's it's pretty good in the cheap seats with this. It's definitely you know it's it's not you know the smoothest and the most refined vehicle, but Mitsubishi's making the best of of what they have, um, and the Outlander is kind of the twenty first ex- century expression of. Uh, the the family station wagon um, and an SEL trim is as fancy as you're going to get it. And it's still, it's a really good deal. And it, if you start going down the list of features, it's pretty well equipped. Now it feels like a ba- like the basic car was designed in the nineties and they've just kept putting the features in <laughs> wherever they fit. Um, so maybe that's part of why I was, I wound up actually kind of impressed with it because I, you walk away and you're like, Oh yeah, right. That reminds me of like my my Volvo 240 that was designed in the 60s and they <laughs> they built it till the 90s and they kept just stuffing crap where they could find places for it. So you had like relays behind the the driver's dead pedal and like you know really? weird switches. Oh yeah, that's where the uh the oh, intermittent man. 240, the intermittent wiper relay and there's another relay that are tucked behind the dead pedal, which is just this like metal bracket and if the windshield leaks, that relay will fill with water. And then you won't have any wipers. So you have to, because it's, it's in there upside down usually. So you have to go and like pull the carpet back, remove the dead pedal, pull the relays out, turn them upside down, dry them out. <laughs> so, and the, the 240 windshield always leaks because the body shell was designed in 1960 something for the 140. So anyway, completely aside, uh, <laughs> the, the Outlander is, you know, it's, it's three rows and SEL trim. It has, uh, leather seats. Um, it has a, a pretty, uh, ma mediocre, uh, <laughs> Rockford Fosgate, uh, audio system. Um, this one didn't have nav, which I was, I was a little surprised about, but again, there's like another upgrade you can, you can make for it. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's like a small footprint, but it has that, that occasional third row, like the old family station wagon would, 
Um, so you can you can use it that way. You definitely have no cargo room if you use that third row. But, uh, you know, it it has all the stuff. It's easy to drive. It actually surprisingly drives pretty well. Um, like it's ride and handling are well tuned. It's it's definitely not the stiffest, most sort of uh, road hugging platform, I guess. But it didn't embarrass itself. You know, it, it felt like. It felt like cars from 15 or 20 years ago that were decent, you know, it's, a, it's and it's apparently it still keeps keeps winning uh, IIHS uh, top safety pick and stuff like that for its segment. So, uh, you know, um, it's it's hard to argue with a car that's that's got all that stuff and all wheel drive for like 32 grand. You, it's It's a really good deal. Well, at least it has something going for it. Well, I mean, you know what I was really the most impressed with was uh, it has a 2.5 liter, 2. Point, I don't know. See, now I'm going to now I'm going to embarrass myself. Um, I think it has a 2.5 liter four cylinder, 2.5 or 2.4. I forget. Um, 2.4. And a CVT. Now that on its on the surface, that sounds like an. Awful, awful conversation. I mean, it, it sounds terrible because it has been terrible. Uh, it was surprisingly lively and very well behaved. Um, I think there's a pretty new iteration of whatever uh, Jatco CVT they're using, um, and they've managed to make it not suck <laughs> in this in this generation. It, it just gets out of the way. You know, it cruises along on the highway. It, it feels way more... Uh, um energetic if you give it the spurs like there's there's a level of power there it's not sluggish it was uh it was there's 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 a there's a a description i have not heard about uh, a mitsubishi outlander in many many years i i was i was shocked and and maybe uh, you know i did i was not on any substances this whole week it was just like it yeah again it's it's sort of a, a nondescript car in a nondescript segment. Um, you know, it really it competes with one automaker, and that's Subaru. And here's the thing, though. Subaru just released their Ascent um, three-row. They don't have anything with three rows. And while that's probably a little bit bigger and... It's actually quite a bit bigger. Right. The Ascent is pretty massive. Right. So this isn't that big. Uh, this is this is Dodge Journey size, and it's it's I think it's actually some of the same basic stuff but the outlander i think has been evolved past the the journey sort of part sharing um but you know it's it's got stuff <laughs> and it, it fits your life like it's it's not a car for people who really care about cars but i was surprised to how much i actually like didn't mind driving it and how if i you know bent it into a curve with some anger it, it was like oh okay we're doing this and and uh you know it was very obedient the, the limits aren't high, but they, they also like, it wasn't sloppy. Like I've found some Subarus that aren't the WRX or the STI are just a mess dynamically. Uh, this wasn't, this wasn't like that. And it was, it was surprising because it's, it's again, it's like, well, this, this is like kind of an old crock that <laughs> they've just updated over and over again. And it's still like, it's, it's, it's all right. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I was surprised. I was most surprised by how, how uh well behaved the transmission and engine combo was and, and how uh how non-sluggish it felt because i expected it to just be like oh, okay here we go we've got a week of just like droning engine and no acceleration nope it's not like that it does its thing and it does it 
quite well. So, well, you know, I, I guess, you know, if what you'd like is, you know, something that can haul your family around and you want something new, you know, with a warranty on it and, you know, you've got a relatively limited budget. I mean, you know, $32,000 is not cheap, but, you know, compared to what you would, you know, the pricing for a lot of its competitors, which can easily get well into the, the $40,000 range and beyond, um, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not the worst choice in the world. No, it's fine. I mean, again, you're going to cross shop this probably with a Forester or uh, I'm trying to think of like what else. Let's put it this way. It could be a Sangyong. <laughs> yeah. I, Mitsubishi has this this sort of bottom feeder reputation. Right? Like if you have a pulse, you can get financed and you can get yourself a Mitsubishi. <laughs> it's so, so fine. But also you're, it's not really a penalty. At least as a new car, I don't know longevity wise what you're up against with this, but, it, you know, it's not full of super fancy gadgetry like you might find in, say, a Ford that's, you know, I'm thinking like the the Escape, but the Escape has a, a, a sort of like another tier of sophistication to it just because it's, it's a newer platform, it has newer features, it has more tech. Uh, and it's done a different way. This is a little bit more of an old school kind of setup, and we're we're spending a little too much time on it now. <laughs> yeah, but but um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a family wagon, and and that's uh, you know, I think that brings us to an interesting point of like the family wagon is sort of morphed into the nondescript mediocre crossover, which is kind of exactly what this is. Yeah, you know, and you know, we've we've both talked that. that- at length over the years about um, how, you know, we often prefer station wagons over um, sedans or other body styles, because, you know, we, we like to have the, uh, you know, the, the dynamic qualities of a car over a sport utility vehicle, uh, but like to have that bit of extra utility with that room in the back, you know, having the, the big, the big tailgate in the back, uh, you know, the, you know, that, that makes it easier, you know, when you've got a haul load from Costco or from Home Depot or wherever, you know, or, you know, you find find something that you really didn't need, but was ridiculously cheap at a yard sale. Uh, you know, you could like a Mitsubishi. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Uh, you know, you can just throw it in the back. You know, you can throw, you know, a couple of bales of straw in there, you know, whatever, whatever you want. Um, and, you know, station wagons are great for that. Unfortunately. Americans seem to over the last 15 years have, you know, com- completely gone away from, you know, with, with the exception of automotive journalists, at least, um, have completely gone away from buying traditional station wagons. I have and faith, though. I have faith. Wagons are going to come back. Maybe, maybe, you know, the Buick Regal might bring them back. Um, but, you know, so the, the thing is, you know, with with wagons going away, you know, uh, it's. You know, what what do you get as a, as an alternative? You know, when my wife and I got rid of our our Jetta TDI sport wagon earlier this year, you know, we decided that, you know, because nobody else was offering a wagon, we were going to go with a hatchback of some sort, uh, a compact hatchback. And so we ended up with with a Honda Civic. Um, but, you know, there are other options. And, you know, while I was uh, spending several hours in a Nissan Leaf earlier this week with Jason Torchinsky from uh, Jalopnik, one of the, the multi- multiple multitude of topics that came up 
was, you know, the the state the state of the modern station wagon. And Jason came up with a very interesting concept. You know, the as as you mentioned, you know, the station wagon has kind of morphed into, you know, what we call a crossover utility vehicle these days. And so J- Jason's got a, a a very interesting um definition for what qualifies as a station wagon versus a hatchback or or some other body style. See now I thought Jason's definition of a wagon would be there's a trunk up front and a trunk in back and an engine underneath. <laughs> Which is like like type three. Anyway, yeah. Moving no. on. And it, no, yeah. uh that 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 is not a station wagon. That is a van. Uh no. the, the the way the way Jason describes the uh the, the station wagon is it, it has you know, four doors and uh, a tailgate. Uh, but to distinguish the wagon from a car or, or from a hatchback, um, it has to have, you know, a third window on the side. Uh, you know, so a, a rear quarter window behind the, the rear door. Um, and the roof must extend back far enough that it covers more than half of the cargo area. So, for example, if you look at the Civic hatchback, you know, the Civic hatchback has a very sloping rear tailgate. And so the roof basically ends, you know, right behind, uh, you know, right behind the, the, the rear seat backs. Um, whereas, for example, if you look at uh, this, uh, this Outlander, the, the, the roof line goes far enough back that, um, you know, it, it covers more than half of the cargo area. Uh, another example of what would qualify as a station wagon versus a hatchback is the Hyundai Elantra GT, because if you look at it, it's got a more vertical hmm. rear tailgate and the roof extends back. You know, granted, it's a, you know, compared to what we traditionally think of as a station wagon, it's a relatively short cargo area. Yeah, see, it, it does. It does. It does fit that definition. But then and it's, it's not a bad definition, but where does that leave cars like the Cadillac CTSV wagon, which. It has wagon in the name, but it's got such tiny cargo area. I don't I don't know if you were to to get out the the measuring tape, if that roof line actually does extend halfway or less. Well, personally, I think, you know, that, you know, if if any automaker that's going to have the gumption to at least call their car a wagon, uh, I think we should, you know, just grandfather them in and give them credit for that. Give them them a pass. Yeah. If they're if they're willing to, to call it a wagon. Fine, we'll we'll go with it. Uh, you know, but whatever uh, in, you in say. The, in the absence of, of vehicles that are actually badged as station wagons, you know, then I think Jason's definition works pretty well. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to argue with the the fact that um, a lot of these crossovers are basically because they are they're car based, they're unibody. Yeah, they're they're not they're not made on truck hardware. And I think that one of the reasons why I like wagons so much is because they have the utility that I want. I, I don't need a truck. If I needed a truck, I'd get a truck. I don't want to haul around a frame and, a, you know, a traditional four-wheel drive system or just a more heavy-duty all-wheel drive system like a truck. I don't want a solid rear axle. I, I, I just I don't want those things. They have their place, and that's not my usage case. So it, it's just inefficient, and I Generally, there's a lot of penalties for going with such an old school kind of design. So let me ask you this. Your Grand Cherokee is a Uh unibody design. Yeah. Not technically a truck. No. Would you would you call it a station wagon 
or or even an SUV for that matter. I'd call it an SUV. It's definitely because see, and this is where you get into that like <laughs> those gray areas, right? But the Cherokee that preceded it was like the original XJ Cherokee, and not that wasn't the original when you had that. The, but anyway, uh, well, the, the XJ, the the the, the first uh, the first modern Unibot. Well, actually, I guess actually the Range Rover, the original Range Rover, was a Unibody, wasn't it? Um, yeah. But that was, I mean, I mean that's the the, the vehicle that is generally considered to have kicked off the modern SUV boom you know, was, as you said, the XJ right. Cherokee of what, 1984, I think it came out. Yeah, I think it came out in 84. But then that was that was definitely unibody. Um, and so from there, the, the XJ's replacement was the ZJ, which became the Grand Cherokee, and they kept selling them both alongside each other. So the XJ sort of established that unibody SUV thing. And uh you saw other competitor SUVs quickly rush to market, right? Like the the S10 and the Bronco, uh, the Bronco 2. Um, those were truck-based, and they, they paid some penalties for it. And the XJ is no sort of like paragon of lightweight or efficiency either, or good packaging. Like, it's... <laughs> it it was what they had, and it, it worked surprisingly well. Um, and it was... It just... It became a thing. It became popular. Um, but... Those all those sort of first generation ones, you you paid the penalty. They were trucky. Even the XJ, the 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 ZJ, the the first Grand Cherokee was like this quantum shift towards something that was very much more luxurious and uh, smooth and car like. Um, and you had a lot of people replacing their cars with that Grand Cherokee. And especially in 92, when that Grand Cherokee came out there were a lot of luxury car buyers that were flipping into the Jeep. Um, and that, that really sort of took off. Uh, it, whereas the, the grand Wagoneer had been the luxury Jeep that was sharing garage space with Mercedes and Volvo and, and BMW. Um, now it was the, the grand Cherokee. Uh, and that just, that like that snowballed um, to the point where now they've, they've taken the, the solid rear axle out of it. It's got, um, you know, fully independent suspension, but it, it's definitely an SUV because it, the Jeep in particular has serious off-road chops, which I never use, <laughs> but, um, but you, you look at the way it's built and you look at what's under it and you go, okay, this is, this is more than just like, uh, a platform that's shared between a sedan and, uh, uh, you know, this crossover thing with another drive shaft that runs back to a, a occasional use rear differential off of front wheel drive sort of transverse powertrain like it's it, that's not what it is and that works fine and that can also make a decent suv like you've, you see stuff like the, the rav4 and i you know you get the rav4 equipped the right way i think that's sort of like a pseudo suv too so whatever um but yeah i, I would call that the the cherokee an suv although you could make the argument that it's a crossover in in usage at least I definitely use it like a crossover. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I talked in circles enough on that one. <laughs> I, so I wouldn't call its competitors SUVs. I wouldn't call an Edge an SUV. That's that's a total crossover. That yes, I would absolutely. I would, and yeah. and because of its sloping uh, rear tailgate, it's not even a wagon. No. Um, and I yeah. Uh, Stuff like the Traverse. So but that's a good point, though. The Traverse now. That one, I think, could qualify as a wagon. It's all right. I think we've 
we've talked in circles enough about wagons. Um, I, I, I think though, uh, to sort of go with the sort of the, the very progressive free to be you and me kind of thing. Um, a wagon is whatever you want it to be. <laughs> Cause okay. why not? <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> it's open to interpretation. All right. Yeah. Uh, so while you were out driving with uh, Jason and, and doing other things, um, you also took it the, the L.A. Auto Show. Yeah. So actually, actually, I was before before heading to Napa for the Leaf. Um, we, I spent uh, several days in, in Los Angeles and a day in San Francisco. And uh, the, uh, the the L.A. Auto Show uh, week kind of kicked off with um, Lincoln. Uh, unveiling the new Nautilus, um, which is actually just a, a refresh of the old MKX. Yeah, and but, so, but a right. good refresh, though. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's fun. The the name is good. Uh, I actually really like the name, um, especially if they can get some like SSN five seventy one kind of Easter <laughs> eggs kicking around it. Uh, but it's still like even updated. It's the MKX, and like that was okay, but it's still very forty. You know, does it stand out anymore with the up, upgrade as a as a Lincoln? That's something unique. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. Um, you know, the you know, the the MKX now, I think, pretty much completes the lineup having this this new Lincoln grill that we first saw on the MKZ and Continental. Uh, actually, we first saw it on the Continental Concept uh, a couple of years back. And it's now spread across the entire lineup because the um, the MKC has also uh, received uh, the updated grill. But the MKC for now at least uh, retains its name. You know, I think the the other thing that is perhaps more interesting about this update for the 2019 model is that it actually has a name. It's you know Lincoln, you know uh, Kumar Golhatra, the president of Lincoln Motor Company. Uh, confirmed uh while we were out there that yes going forward lincoln's lincoln is dropping the mk uh blank uh nomenclature so there will be no more mks uh you know going forward it, everything is going to have a real name of some sorts so you know we've already got the continental and i mean the navigator always had its name that that was the one model that always bucked the trend well it's uh, kind of like the escalator right. has a cadillac Right. I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. It was interesting last week to read the story about how how this came about, where it was actually a, a Lincoln executive being in an in an airport shuttle. You know, talking to some other fellow travelers and saying, what do you what do you drive? And they well, actually it was with his wife is Robert Parker, who's uh, head of marketing for for Lincoln Utilities. Yeah, uh, he's the marketing manager. And he was he was in the airport, you know, the parking lot shuttle. Uh, with with his wife and they were arguing over what the name of their their vehicle was whether oh. it was an mkc or an mkz i thought it was another couple that he was no no couple. it was it was his wife well and if that's <laughs> so yeah so. and i'm sure they were both each convinced like damn it no we have this one and like that but that's you know that's a really good point is just like you put in these these naming conventions that even we as journalists mess up like i, I was talking on, on twitter about it people just like people forgot about the mkt first of all <laughs> other than fleets nobody buys them yeah um and just the, well they it, it, it was forgotten for for reasons that go well beyond its name uh, well yeah it looks like moby dick but uh <laughs> beyond that though like i think it's a good move to bring names back not because i want to cling to nostalgia or history but they've got some names with some equity you know continental town car even um mm -hmm. 
th- th- those are those are good names. Why not establish Zipper. another name? Yeah. Um, although I think that <laughs> while some Lincoln buyers are very old, any of them who actually remember the Zephyr phone. <laughs> Well, actually, the, the you know the Zephyr was was with us more recently for yeah. a single model year. Yeah. You know, what what we now know is the MKZ actually launched in 2006 as the Zephyr, uh, and then just a year later they dropped that and changed it to MKZ for reasons that still remain not entirely clear. But fortunately, they they will be going back. You know, the the MKZ and the the MKC remain the last two with that kind of branding. And both of those are nearing the end of their their life cycle in the next year or two. So, you know, uh, again, you know, Kumar uh, Gohatra explained that, you know, they've, they've got limited marketing budgets, you know, to, to work with this stuff. And it, it actually costs quite a bit of money to establish a new brand name. Uh, so, you know, for this year, they're focusing on the Nautilus, you know, we've already got Continental. I mean, Continental was a name that I think everybody still remembered, but, you know, and Navigator was always there. Uh, but they're focusing on the, the Nautilus this year. And then probably next year is when uh, the new MKZ will arrive with a new name. And, you know, sometime around then as well, sometime probably in 2019 or so, we'll see a next generation MKC uh, with with a, a name that uh, is yet to be determined. So you don't they're not going to bring back like Aviator or anything like that? Uh, that's entirely possible. And in fact, what we might see, um, you know, I mean, th- there has been speculation that they'll bring back the Aviator name, which, you know, existed on a Lincoln badged version of the Explorer back in the in the 1990s. Yeah, in the ni- late 90s. 90s and 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that one may may well come back, uh, you know, if they. It, it wouldn't be a surprise, you know, given, you know, Ford has talked about you know, introducing um, like four or five new SUV nameplates uh, between between now and 2020. Uh, and, you know, at least a couple of those are expected to be Lincolns. So the, uh, you know, uh, a, a, navig- a new aviator based on the next generation Explorer, which is also due in the next couple of years. Uh, Ford has a lot of stuff due in the next couple of years. So they've been slacking a little bit of late but anyway um that one may may get the aviator name or may get something else entirely we don't know yet well they're also doing a a marketing shakeup from what i understand at lincoln which is probably going to help them because one of the problems they've had is determining what they they stand for and i I know i come at things with a marketing and advertising kind of focus I'm, i'm sorry but uh car ads in general are really tough right now because what used to work doesn't and Yet you still kind of have to do it. And you've got to, uh, you know, people are have a different relationship to their cars now. Um, so the, Lincoln has to kind of stake out territory and they haven't been good at it over the last few years. I mean, they've had these weird ads with Matthew McConaughey and before that just really completely forgettable milk toast stuff. Um, but they have an opportunity as part of their their model renaming to get out there, you know, because even if it's the same vehicle, right? Like the Nautilus is the really the MKX, but it's a new name. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like if you can get somebody's attention with that, that you couldn't get with the old name, that's a new car. And it, they might give it a, a, a new chance. Um, and it gives you something to talk about anyway. So uh, I know that that part of their, their effort is to, to figure out how to market the cars better. And that might help them. No matter what, well, you know, I mean, Lincoln's actually been making quite a surprising amount of progress in the last few years and especially in uh, in China. 
you know, they've they've grown from nothing to uh, about 60,000 sales this year in just three years. Uh, so, you know, they've, they've actually had, you know, gotten off to a pretty strong start in China and, and they've had good growth here in North America as well. Um, you know, and this this whole, you know, I think, you know, what what the realization they came to uh, a few years ago um, when Ford recommitted to the Lincoln brand, at, at least, you know, for a time uh, was that, you know, they, they weren't going to be able to compete head on with uh with the germans you know with the german premium brands you know trying to build the same kinds of vehicles uh you know that was just a losing battle i mean you know cadillac's been fighting that battle for 15 years and you know having limited success um and you know lincoln decided you know the the better maybe the better way to go is to you know focus on you know really refining what they had, the products they had, you know, giving them a distinct look from from the Fords that they share underpinnings with and really focusing more on the customer experience and, you know, the the whole uh, experience around owning a Lincoln. You know, so they've they've done things like, you know, the black label uh, program, you know, where and, you know, they've got all kinds of concierge services that they offer their customers. They've they've got pickup and delivery for for service visits. So when a car needs to go in for maintenance, you know, they'll come and pick it up and, and bring it back to you. Um, you know, and they've they've got the, the Lincoln chauffeur service that they announced at the New York Auto Show, which has, uh, you know, they piloted it in Miami and San Diego. And uh, they've they've made some updates to it now as they get ready to expand it. Uh, and it's now called Lincoln personal driver rather than chauffeur. Um, but you know, they're, they're trying, you know, they're trying a bunch of different things that seem to be gaining some traction. And, you know, one of those things now is uh, a subscription service that they're starting. Uh, you know, and we've seen some other subscription services from, from Cadillac and Porsche and more recently Volvo, um, you know, and, you know, again, Lincoln's taking it a slightly different tack on it. Um, you know, instead of paying, you, you still pay uh, a flat monthly fee that, you know, gives you the vehicle and insurance and maintenance and everything. Uh, but, um, rather than, uh, being able to swap in and out different cars whenever you feel like, um, you, you pay by the month and then you can switch each month if you want, or you can keep the, the same vehicle for however long you feel like. Um, but yeah, you know, so you can switch up to once a month. Uh, and then, you know, each, each vehicle has, is at a different monthly price point. Uh, but you know, if you want to drive an MKC one month, uh, and then jump into a Nautilus the next month or a navigator or go into a continental, uh, you can do that. And they're going to be piloting that starting in early 2018. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, that and these other subscription services catch on. Yeah. Well, it's good that Lincoln is sort of treading its own path. They, they need to be doing that. Um, they they shouldn't try to compete with the Germans. I think that's a, a surefire way to shoot themselves in the foot. Uh, if we're going to use two two metaphors <laughs> back to back, but it's really like what they need to do is they need to define what it, they they need to define what it means to be a Lincoln owner or a Lincoln driver. And so if it means a high level of concierge service, uh, if it means being able to swap your car. Or, you know, the, the ability to, to pay up to be able to, to swap your car. Or if it means they take care of you like a Lexus dealer. Everybody could learn stuff from Lexus dealers because that's one of the reasons why Lexus buyers are so loyal is because they get treated well. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise. You, you don't treat people like, you know, meat bags with money in their pockets. 
they they will come back and buy your cars however you know uninteresting they are because i would much rather have a lincoln like an m uh, i'm sorry like a nautilus versus a lexus rx um for a variety of reasons but the lincoln speaks to me much more uh but if i have to go to the lincoln dealer and they treat me poorly I would be happy to go and get treated like a king at Lexus. So um, those well, are much that's, easier. That's definitely something Lincoln is trying is trying to do is make sure they do treat their customers correctly. Yeah, because I, I mean, I think that even with even if they hadn't updated the product, uh, there's so much ground to be covered or so much so much gain, so, so many gains to be had by just learning how to treat people better. Um, I think that that's, that's sort of an area where you could leave the cars the same because they're all pretty good. You know, as much as I say that, you know, they weren't differentiated enough from Fords and they're, they're still working on that. Um, they're getting more and more different. Um, the, the ownership experience and the customer experience is really like, that's, that's going to make you buy or not buy or buy once and come back or buy once and never come back. So I babbled about that enough now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so where do we go from here? What do you what, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to stay on Ford and talk about EV production or? Um, well, let's uh, hit a few of the highlights of the LA Auto Show. I mean, the, uh, the biggest highlight was that thing that Chris Bangle uh, introduced the, the the red box or yeah, whatever the red space reds. I think it's the reds. The car is the reds, right? But the company yeah, is red space. Like that. Yeah. I, I'm sure everybody hated it, but I thought it was actually really um, intriguing and it was a good, good exercise. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're going to see a lot more vehicles of that type emerging over the next several years, you know, that are targeted at, at use in various kinds of mobility services. Uh, you know, it's going to be a growing segment and, you know, car makers are going to be experimenting with, with different form factors for, uh, for automated vehicles, you know, that, to take advantage of the fact that you don't have to have, you know, um, you know, the controls and, and a lot of other stuff that we traditionally have in vehicles, you know, and, and let the passengers do something different. Um, but, you know, there's there's also a lot of other stuff coming before we get there. Yeah. Um, you know, like one one of the you know Volkswagen uh, made a announcement uh, at L.A. <clears throat> they showed, you know, all, all three of the the members of the ID family that they've previously shown the, the, uh, the original hatchback, um, the, the bus, the ID bus buzz, sorry, that we saw in Detroit back in January and uh, the latest, which is the ID cross, uh, which is a, a compact uh, crossover coupe. Uh, and all these are all electric. Um, and uh, the, the, the ID hatchback is launching in Europe in 2019 and the uh, the crossover is launching here in the U.S. in 2020 uh, with, uh, you know, range of you know, available range over 300 miles. Uh, base model is going to be over 200 um, and uh, should make for a very interesting competitor uh, for for Tesla, you know, assuming that they're still in business in 2020. Well, I mean, that kind of assumes the Volkswagen still in business, too. They got a big settlement that I think they're paying out That's 30 billion dollars and. Yeah, well, they're they're you know they're, they're, I suspect they'll be around. I mean, they they actually have you know a fairly decent cash pile and and you know a lot of positive cash flow. They they actually uh, bring in more cash than they spend every year, uh, unlike wow. uh, Tesla. And so. Also, they have stuff they could sell off. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they you know so they they have some assets available to them. Uh, but you know the other thing too is the the bus you know is officially going to be a production model in 2022. Uh, so the the micro bus is back. Yeah, I'm not convinced. I, they say things like that at shows, and it's early enough now that they could be like, yeah, we decided not to do that in six well, months. Well, uh, in this case, I think they will do it because um, I think, you know, they, they want a vehicle of this form factor um, for autonomous mobility, you know, because the, the minivan, you know, is, is I think is going to be a very important form factor for, for these kinds of services because uh, it's easy for people to get in and out. Uh, you know, it'll, it, you know, and being electric, you know, it'll, it makes a lot of sense to... Uh, to use that vehicle. So I think, I think they will build something like this. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny, all these like startups and new ideas and stuff, you know, they, they're all reinventing the bus. <laughs> so we yeah. might as well just use a van. Um, but yeah, it, uh, I agree. Something that look, doesn't look just like a box. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's just got to pick a, how do you get the most, you know, how uh, the most riders into the autonomous car. That's a car sharing thing or, or, you know, ride sharing or whatever. Anyway, I'm being cynical. Um, but yeah, well, that I, is your job. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, <laughs> like station wagons, I'm okay with the bus or the, 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 the van sort of being resurgent. It's especially if we want to talk about, the most efficient way to move people and stuff. That's a fan. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that. I mean, there, there's a reason why, you know, Waymo is, you know, doing, you know, launching their mobility service with Chrysler Pacifica hybrids. You know, it's, it's the right form factor for the job. I bet Chrysler made him a deal. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, not necessarily. Uh, so what, uh, what else did you see at LA that you, you were interested. Uh, well, at the opposite end of the scale, of course, uh, you know, GM showed the uh, the ZR1 convertible. Uh, you know, we saw the the coupe a couple of weeks ago in Dubai, and and now they launched the convertible as well. So, you know, 216 mile an hour top speed with the top down, yeah, not too shabby. Yeah, I mean the the the, the ZR1 in a convertible, like that's that's just a that's a printing press for money. They'll, they'll sell every single one of those. Oh, yeah. You, you, you can't go wrong. No, they'll get tucked uh, away in the garage. Know, other, other than other than the fact that, you know, who really needs a, a 750 horsepower car? But so this is my complaint about Corvettes, though, is even the base one is surprisingly good performance for surprisingly small cash outlay. Yeah. And, you know, compared to other, you know, hyper cars, you know, yeah. at 120 grand. ZR1, I mean, it's not cheap, but, you know, it's not crazy expensive either. So, uh, yeah, Infinity showed off the uh, the second generation QX50, which, you know, in itself, you know, is a fine, you know, midsize crossover, uh, you know, adopts, you know, Infinity's current design language and does it in a pretty nice way. It's a pretty decent looking vehicle. You know, it makes a, a very nice brown station wagon. Uh, <laughs> but what's really cool about it, though, uh, is the engine that's in this thing. It is the first production application of, uh, Infinity slash Nissan's new, uh, variable compression engine. So it's, it's a two liter turbo four cylinder, uh, with this fascinating mechanism in the, in the crankcase 
that can uh, that enables it to you know you've got this linkage that moves the the bottom of the connecting rods so you can vary the compression ratio between eight to one and fourteen to one you know and any or anywhere in between you know to get maximum power or maximum efficiency out of the thing higher higher compression ratios give you more efficiency you know whereas you can get more power out of a bit lower compression ratio um you know and and looking at the the diagrams of this thing you know it seems like it seems crazy that it works first of all yeah i can't i can't picture that in my head like and i've seen illustrations of it i just can't picture how the linkage works to rotate the connecting rods to because it it basically it varies the static compression ratio by adjusting the stroke right like uh well no the stroke stays the same uh it's just that the the whole thing the piston and rod move up and down vertically in the, within the cylinder so it, it basically it changes the so the, the deck height center and bottom, the, top dead center yeah. and bottom dead center move in right. tandem okay. uh so that gives you know so as you move it up in the cylinder you get more compression you move it down it gets less compression and you know it seems like this mechanism should be adding you know tons and tons of weight to the thing uh and you know all kinds of friction and it just it shouldn't work uh it certainly shouldn't be able to get 27% better fuel efficiency than uh than the the V6 that it replaces but it does you know and, and talking to the chief engineer um you know he explained you know some of the some of the ideas behind it and and why this thing works first of all it's only 10 kilograms heavier than a conventional uh 2 liter 4 cylinder turbo so that's about 22 pounds uh but it's 35 or you know 30 kilos less than uh, a 3.5 liter v6 um, and the reason why the the weight gain is comparatively small is because uh, they were actually able to get rid of the balance shafts in this thing so you got rid of two balance shafts and added this mechanism you know so you get you know only a, a minor weight gain from it um, but and the reason why they were able to get rid of the balance shafts is because with this mechanism uh, as the as the piston moves up and down in the cylinder the connecting rods actually have um, far less movement they swivel a lot less than they normally do in a conventional engine and so you get vastly reduced um, side thrust forces on the piston so basically the piston you know the piston and the rod move up and down almost straight in the cylinder most of the time there's very little side motion and so you get a lot less vibration and um you know a lot less uh, friction as well so that both of those contribute or the, the friction contributes to partially to the the fuel economy gain and then um the the reduced motion uh, side to side motion help with the vibrations so you can live without the balance shaft so it's it's a incredibly clever design it yeah at first it seems like they've put a lot of uh, like a rube goldberg solution to it because you know the normal way to vary the compression is to use forced induction that's essentially what it is it's a variable compression engine mm -hmm. um so this this way of actually varying the static compression like moving the, the whole assembly uh i'm sure it's not the first time it's been tried it's the first time it's made it to production um it, it seems like it's actually pretty simple and elegant and you know has that chance to be reliable for the the long term um you know, I wonder, I wonder where it goes from here. Like, is, does, does, is that one of the measures? Like when, when we talked with, um, I, I forget his name, uh, the guy from Mazda talking about how he still thinks there's a lot left in the oh, Robert Davis. Question. Right. Um, 
so is this one of the things that's kind of like a life extender for the internal combustion engine? We just get more and more clever and tricky with it. Yeah, I, I think absolutely it is. You know, um, you know, the, the, you know, the nice infinity wouldn't talk about, you know, what the, the cost is, but, you know, again, because you're getting rid of balance shafts and some other parts, um, you know, the, the cost, you know, actually the incremental cost shouldn't be that high compared to, you know, the existing engines, um, you know, and then, you know, Mazda, is, of course, has their own solution that achieves some of the same ends, you know, of variable compression with the Sky Active X that's coming um, in 2019, 2019, excuse me, the 2019 um, Mazda 3. So, uh, you know, they're, everybody's looking at, you know, how, you know, the, the goal is, you know, to take things that have traditionally been static you know, and, and fixed in a, in an internal combustion engine and make them variable because, you know, all, all these static, um, characteristics of the engine mean that it can never be optimized for the entire op operating range. You know, there's always parts of the operating range where performance or efficiency is compromised. And so the more you can vary all these things now, you know, so I mean, we've had variable cam timing and, and valve lift and things like that for years and, you know, variable fuel delivery from injection systems. And now, you know, this is, you know, variable compression is kind of the next stage of this, um, you know, and it's, it's getting us more and more efficiency and, and allowing, allowing engineers to optimize the entire, more of the entire, more of the operating range of the engine. Yeah, I mean, that's where you're going to find the gains. Uh, you just optimize it over a wider range instead of an, an hour sort of uh, window. And yep. That, that's, it's impressive. Uh, I I hope that you get to drive it. I'm sure you'll get to drive it oh, sooner yeah, than I will. Soon. So I was, was going to say, I hope you get to drive it sometime soon so we can have a little bit of a report on it. Uh, let's see, what else was said, L.A.? The, the, the new well, Wrangler. Uh, yeah, the Wrangler was there. Um, it's it's still a Wrangler. I was gonna say it um, looks like a Wrangler. <laughs> yeah, so still looks like a Wrangler as as well it should. Um, I, I on uh, Tuesday I actually left L.A. for the day, uh, caught a six a.m. flight from L.A. to San Francisco to uh, go to uh, an event that GM was holding with their their team from Cruise Automation who are developing their their production automated driving software, um, and it's the first time that we've actually you know, been able to get some real exposure to their uh, prototype automated bolts um, and uh, and talk to uh, Kyle Vogt, the CEO of Cruise, and uh, learned a whole bunch of things about what they're doing on this car. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, um, GM, unlike Ford, has decided that they're going to go all electric with their automated vehicles. And the Bolt is going to be their launch vehicle for their uh, automated mobility service that's that's going to start uh, in commercial service in 2019, something they announced last week. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's fascinating that the this this car um, has 40 sensors on it. There's five LIDAR sensors, 14 cameras, and a whole bunch of radar, including 10 new ultra short range radar sensors, um, and then three computers to control the thing. Uh, it's just, it's amazing, you know, how much hardware there is in this thing. And we got to go for a ride in it on the streets of San Francisco. And, you know, like Waymo did, um, you know, they have tablets at each uh, seating position. So you can see what the sensors are seeing and you can see the paths you know, it shows you the the, the decision making process for uh, the driving paths uh, so you can see, you know, what its current planned path is. And, you know, if it's looking at alternates, you know, it'll show you what those are. 
So you can see, you know, you, it's it's part of what they're doing to try to build trust in the system. Uh, you know, so you can look around you and see, oh, yeah, there's two people crossing the street with dogs you know, in front of us, you know, from opposite directions. And you can see them right on the screen there. You know, and you can see that cyclist and this truck over here. Um, you know, so I, I, w- I came away pretty confident in the decision making capabilities of the of the system. One of the clever things it did when it came upon a. A, a double parked truck that was unloading um, on a side street in San Francisco. You know, it, the car pulled up behind it, stopped, waited, made sure there's nobody coming from from behind and or passing. And then uh, it did, you know, what a human would do in, in the same situation. You know, you pull out a little bit and do a little peek to see if there's anybody coming in the opposite direction. Um, and when it realized there was there was no, you know, that it was all clear from the opposite direction, then it pulled out and pulled around. The one flaw in the whole system, though, was, um, you know, kind of the the control uh, of the vehicle. So the the decision making, I think, you know, was working really well. I was confident in that. But the the control refinement, you know, so the steering inputs, braking inputs were um, harsher than I would expect them to be. You know, and the, the best analogy to describe them is, you know, if you remember when you first learned how to drive, you know, you. You know, you you, you tended you tend to turn the steering wheel more than you actually needed to. You know, the first few times, you know, until you learn what the relationship is between, you know, uh, a certain amount of steering angle and and speed of turning the wheel and a certain amount of movement of the car. You know, same thing with the brakes. You tend to you know hit the brakes harder than you need to until you learn to you know modulate all that. And you know, so GM needs to get some of their their vehicle dynamics engineers working on this more with the. Uh, with the cruise team to, to kind of smooth it all out, smooth out the control. But other than that, it was, it was working really well. Well, and that's like, that's, I'm assuming, I mean, you've, you've worked at an automaker and sort of development. So that last little bit of, of work though, seems like it is that control refinement. Like they've, they've done a lot of the other stuff and now it's how to make it smooth and, and kind of behave in a way that doesn't, doesn't alarm anyone who's riding in it. That's, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a trivial problem, but you right. know, compared to the problem of, you know, sensing correctly, sensing what's going on in, in its environment and, you know, making the right path planning decisions, you know, that's, that's really the harder problem. Uh, and then, you know, the, the refinement is, you know, something that is a comparatively easier problem, but it, you know, it's going to take some time and, and some effort to do that. So, this almost to me came out of uh, a little bit out of nowhere because I don't I don't follow it as closely as you do, but like it seems like we've heard other companies, even Ford, um, working at this aggressively, and then GM is like, oh yeah, here's our here's our thing. Um, was this all in house? Are they working with suppliers on our, you know a lot of the, the software? Or are they like how how much of the development is is sort of going on mm-hmm. within the halls of GM? Uh, no, it's it's all you know in house. You know between you know the you know, GM and, and now at cruise automation, uh, you know, so basically, you know, GM and cruise followed a similar path, you know, in that they were both developing um, automated driving capabilities, you know, for a long time internally. Um, and then, you know, over the last year, both of them have uh, acquired uh, or invested in uh, startups, you know, that were focused on the software side of it, uh, you know, and, and the the idea, you know, talking to Doug Parks, who's the the VP of autonomous and electric programs at GM, you know, about 
what what it was about Cruz that prompted GM to acquire them is, you know, said, you know, basically it was a, a smart team and they, they wanted to bring in uh, a team that could bring in some of the kind of the Silicon Valley attitude of being able to uh, work more quickly, you know, and, um, you know, iterate quickly uh, through uh, the, the development process, you know, and make changes faster uh, and get things going. But at the same time, they wanted to combine that with their, you know, their traditional skills of, you know, being able to actually, you know, mass manufacture and, you know, really validate and test all this stuff and make sure that it's safe because that's, that's absolutely crucial for everybody doing this is that these systems have to be safe and you really have to test the hell out of them. So at the same time that, that the cruise guys are developing the software, you know, in California and Arizona and elsewhere, um, you know, you've got other engineers in, uh, Milford and, and other locations that are, uh, putting these autonomous vehicles through their paces. And, you know, one, one of the interesting things as well this year, you know, we saw GM introduce, um, two new generations of their, uh, bolt prototypes, autonomous bolt prototypes. Um, and actually there's been three generations in total in the span of 14 months. Uh, after they bought Cruise in the spring of 2016, they put together an initial batch of 50 bolts, autonomous bolts. Um, with a, a first pass at what the sensor suite was that they were looking at using. And then uh, Cruz started working with those. And, at the, and then they immediately started uh, work on two parallel paths um, from, from there. One team was working on a more sophisticated sensor suite, which would be the production intent sensor setup. Uh, and, when they when GM announced back in May of this year, I think, or so May or April or May, that they were building 130 more uh, bolts uh, in the factory in in Orion, Michigan, where the where the the other bolts are built, um, those were the cars that they built at that time, and so they had the full sensor suite, and they again shipped those off, shipped most of those off to crews to work with those. And um, then the other team that was working at the same time in parallel were working on the safety aspects and all the redundancy. And uh, so, um, you know, that was, you know, putting in redundant brake systems, redundant steering systems, uh, redundant compute platforms. And, you know, when they, as soon as they were ready in the summer, that's when, you know, in September, they launched the third generation prototype, which combined the sensors that were on the second generation with the rest of this hardware um, and then built another 50 of those. So now, you know, they have 180 uh, or no, two, sorry, 230 uh, prototypes uh, of, of these three different configurations that they're using to to do this development and testing you know, and, you know, going through all the, the usual durability testing on, you know, all, you know, in, uh, you know, running through saltwater baths and, and everything else and rough road conditions uh, that they do with any other vehicle and making sure that all the hardware holds up. Yeah, because GM knows a thing or two about all of that stuff that I think is what's missing from some of the other upstarts in the autonomous vehicle space. Like they have to learn how to make a vehicle. And, right. and make a vehicle that's going to work in, in all the conditions. Like a lot of that stuff is, is sorted out with the the sort of long serving automakers. Yeah. And, you know, that was exactly the reason why, you know, that uh, when I talked to uh, Brian Seleski, the CEO of Argo AI um, a few months ago, that was the reason he gave for why, you know, the, they opted to go with uh, Ford investing in them instead of taking VC money 
um, is because they wanted to work with a manufacturer that knew how to actually build the vehicles and, and do all this other stuff so they could focus on on the software side of it. And, you know, that's that's the other announcement that came out last night, I think, at least partly in response to GM's announcements last week that, um, you know, that uh, that, uh, you know, Ford is um, <clears throat> refocus, you know, is, is continuing their focus on the production development of their automated car for 2021. But unlike GM, they're not using an existing vehicle to do it for the first generation. They're going straight to a custom designed vehicle for autonomous driving. Um, and, you know, the Argo team is working on the production software. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the Ford team is working on developing the vehicle. And that's going to be built here in Michigan at the Flat Rock assembly plant, uh, which was actually announced back in January by ex-CEO Mark Fields. Um, but they, they also announced, you know, as, as part of that, you know, kind of slipped in something in there that, you know, when Fields <laughs> made his announcement in January, um, you know, he also said that the Flat Rock plant was going to build Ford's new, uh, 300 mile range electric EV or SUV. Um, and, uh, that, uh, that, pr that, uh, program will now actually be, uh, built in Mexico instead, uh, at Ford's, uh, Cuadilan, uh, assembly plant that currently builds the Fiesta. And they're going to build the uh, the electric uh, SUV down there instead, uh, so they have more capacity for autonomous vehicles in Flat Rock. Yeah, it's all getting all getting rearranged. Um, you know, I saw on Twitter somebody somebody commented like, "What do the suppliers think of this?" Because it was you know they were when we were talking about this before we started. There was supposed to be an all new factory in Mexico for the Focus, and then. That stopped, and then they they were moving the focus into the existing factory, uh, and then they have now decided they're going to move the focus to China so they can do the EV thing. Uh, suppliers must be like, "You want us to ship the parts? Where? Just tell us where you want the stuff." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, well, damn it. <laughs> you know, for, fortunately, you know, both of those programs are still far enough out that you know that it shouldn't be too disruptive. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely you know can throw a monkey wrench into planning for, for where you're going to produce this stuff. Because usually, you, you know, they, they try to produce a lot of the parts as close as they can to the assembly line. Um, and, you know, moving the assembly line from Michigan to Mexico is that can be pretty disruptive. Yeah. But I mean, I think too, you know, moving an assembly line from, from Mexico, not of China, like uh, it, China has sort of, the, it's like this double-edged sword. Like I think there's a lot of companies that want to get in there and sort of crack the Chinese market, right? Because that's, that's such a potential growth market, even even as, you know, every now and then we say, oh, it's heating up, oh, it's cooling off. Um, once you get in there and you get some learning on the ground, I think that that's a, and, and I'm, there's a ton of suppliers there already, uh, but it's a, just a good opportunity. Um, so I don't, I don't, I wouldn't see it necessarily as a bad thing if I were a supplier and the Ford said, hey, the car that you're going to, you know, supply us parts with, and we're going to build this industrial park. So you're right there for our just in time system. Uh, we're, we're now going to China. I'd well, kind of be like, okay. actually, I mean, the focus is already built in China anyway. So That's they, true. Yeah. They, they already, you know, currently they build focus in, in the U S in China and in, in Europe. And so basically they're just dropping North American production of focus and, you know, That's okay. Cause we've that, dropped North American buying. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's that's exactly why, you know, because, you know, sales of small cars have declined so much that it, you know, they can't justify uh, building them here 
Um, you know, so they'll, you know, they'll go down to two plants, one in Europe, one in, in China, uh, and bring over U.S. market cars from from China. So how expensive are these going to going to wind up being like talking about and I'm jumping around a little bit, but coming back to the this bolt, um, it has like five lighter sensors on it. Um, well, uh, last week, uh, Dan Amon, uh, who's there, you know, he said that, you know, currently uh, the LIDAR setup, you know, costs about $20,000. And by the time they go into commercial uh, operation in 19, it should be down to about half that, down to about $10,000. Because also last week uh, or the week before, Velodyne uh, announced that they're ramping up production of their next generation sensor, which is what um, GM is going to be using on the uh, on the first generation of the bolts. Um, so that, you know, that cost will come down. Uh, but the thing is, GM's not going to be selling these. So it doesn't matter how much they cost, really, because you're not going to be able to buy an autonomous car. And, and most other manufacturers aren't going to be selling them to consumers. They're only going to be available through ride hailing services. Yeah, and that's that's smart. Yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine the chaos. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of issues, you know, which, you know, we'll, we'll, we can get into another time um for why why this is happening but yeah i mean don't don't expect that you'll be able to buy um and and uh, autonomous car anytime in the foreseeable future or maybe never so did it leave you Im- impressed like how does how does gm's effort at an autonomous program stack up to the other uh automaker efforts you've you've checked out i mean i'm you know the the demo uh with the um with the bolt was by far the most complex um, environment that I've been in, in an autonomous vehicle. You know, most of the other demos I've been in, you know, were not nearly as crowded. There was not, not as much stuff going on. You know, they were, you know, were, were taking place on a test track like we did with Waymo uh, where, you know, it was all simulated. I mean, this was in a real environment where these things are going to be operating and the car worked, um, you know, so I, I was impressed, you know, I, I'm, the issues, you know, that I saw with some of the control refinement, I'm confident that those will be resolved, you know, fairly soon. Um, and then, you know, the other stuff, you know, the other stuff is just it's working fine just now. So um, I, you know, I think they're in as good shape as anybody. Well, uh, when the robot overlords come. Uh, they I will guess, be kind to me because I was nice yeah. to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and hey, this was was this the first time you got in car and driver? Uh, no, I've I've done a couple of articles for them in the past. Good for you. Yeah, that was like that was was my holy grail when I was twelve years old. I wanted <laughs> to be a car writer. It's like I want to write for car and driver. Yeah, this is about the second or third time I've I've been in there. Uh, so yeah, that was that was fun because uh, they weren't able to get anybody into this event. There were it was a pretty small uh, group of people that were there, only about fifteen people um at that event so i felt uh, lucky to be there um so let's see what else do we have uh oh the leaf yeah the leaf uh there's there's a new nissan leaf yeah so this is one of the things that um i find hilarious is the tesla model 3 is supposed to be like it's supposed to drive on water right it's supposed to be like <laughs> this is the car that's going to take EVs mainstream. It's like, nah, you know what? There's been an affordable mainstream EV for a very long time now. It's been made by Nissan. It's been very quiet, sort of about. And, and uh, you know, it's it's actually uh, the best selling uh, EV in the world. Uh, it's they've really sold really good. 
they've Nissan has sold a lot more Leafs uh, than Tesla has sold of all of their cars to date. Um, you know, so far they've sold about 290,000 of them globally uh, and about 114,000 in the U.S. Um, so, you know, it's it's doing all right. Yeah. Uh, and and this new one is definitely a significant upgrade. You know, it, it's it's based on a lot of the same structure from the current car. But, um, you know, the, the styling is much more mainstream now. You know, it looks like other Nissan vehicles and the interior is less weird. Um, you know, it, it works, you know, it looks more like other Nissan vehicles and, you know, it's the first Nissan to hit production with, uh, Android auto and CarPlay support. Um, you know, saying that what for about the third or fourth time tonight, <laughs> uh, those are important to you for some reason. Well, they, they are, you know, I mean, it's, that's, I think those are important features to have, but, um, no, I mean, you know, driving it, you know, it, it felt good. It, you know, it drives, drives well. Um, you know, like other, um, other EVs, it, um, it's got, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, strong get up off the line, you know, lo, you know, that instant low end torque, you know, it's, yeah, sure. It's not as quick as a you know, model three is going to be, uh, Who in terms of total cares? acceleration, but it's got more than enough performance for, you know, most, almost every driver, yeah. um, and you know, 147 horsepower now, 236 foot pounds of torque. I think, um, you know, it'll 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 do just fine. Um, I think most people will be absolutely satisfied with this thing. The you know the only thing that some people might be concerned about is you know compared to the Bolt, um, the range is quite a bit lower. It's about 150 miles, um, whereas the Bolt is you know 238. Uh, but uh, you know there there is going to be a, a another version with a larger battery and over 200 miles of range coming in 2018. Uh, and, you know, even this one, you know, for, for, for most people, 150 miles is probably going to be fine. Uh, oh yeah. That's like, and, and it supports DC fast charging and, and, and other stuff. So I, I think it'll do, do great. Especially for the price. Like the last time I checked, you could, you've well, that, taken federal and local ta- or federal and state tax credits. You can, you can get a, a, uh, leaf down close to twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, absolutely. That that's that's the other thing. You know, the starting price for the leaf, you know, is under thirty thousand. It's about uh, uh, well, with with delivery charge, it's thirty thousand six eighty. Or no, sorry, that was the seventeen. So it's twenty nine nine. Uh, is the starting price for the twenty eighteen leaf uh, for the S model, um, and. You know, that gets you, you know, 6.6 kilowatt charger and and e-pedal and, you know, same range as the the most expensive one. And and even the most expensive Leaf, uh, the loaded SL, is still only 36,000. So it's still cheaper than a Bolt. And that's part of the reason why they opted for, you know, the smaller battery, you know, because the battery is the single biggest cost in an EV. So they, you know, they went with the the 40 kilowatt hour battery and, you know, that got them a sub $30,000 sticker price. And with incentives, you know, for at least for as long as the federal incentive stays around, uh, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. that's seventy five hundred bucks off there. And if you live in California, that's another five grand off. Uh, so you can you can get it under twenty thousand dollars new, um, which is a pretty good deal. Yeah, especially it fulfills all the promises that everybody wants out of the, the Model S and, and other cars of that ilk. And it's been doing it for a while. And that's why. I, it sort of makes me shake my head like it, it doesn't have the cachet for sure, but it's got a lot of the teething stuff really 
figure it out. You know, you don't oh, yeah. really hear about issues with the leaf. They're not a lemon. It's just, it just does its thing. And 150 miles of range is like you said, well, it's not as good as something like the bolt. It, it's plenty. You'd be able to do a daily commute with that. I personally would be able to do a daily commute with that. And, and my commute is long, like much more, much longer than average. So, right. Um, and, you know, I mean, gonna, this is almost double the range of the, you know, of what it was when the car launched in 2010, you know, yeah. it was like 80 miles then. Um, and, you know, it's funny I, on Sunday, I showed it, I showed the leaf to someone who currently owns um, a, a Tesla model X and um, she is not at all happy with the Tesla. I mean, you know, they've had a ton of problems with that thing. And, you know, she wants to get another EV, uh, but has no intention of buying another Tesla. And she really liked the Leaf, you know, and there's there's a pretty decent chance that she might end up buying one. So is the Leaf smaller, though? It's not it's not as big as the Model X. Oh, no, it's, it's a lot smaller than the Model X. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a C-segment car. You know, it's comparable in size to a Focus or a Civic. Um, you know, so, yeah, it's it's got uh, about 92 cubic feet of interior space. Yeah. Um, 24 cubic feet of cargo space. So, you know, it's it's got plenty. You know, it's got plenty of room in there. Yeah. I mean, 24 feet of cargo space is just actually pretty great. Um, mm -hmm. That Yeah. That, and that's, I guess, the one thing is like it's not as big as some of the other uh ev options out there but I, I mean i don't know i've always been impressed by the leaf and it, it's sort of like this dark horse uh that we it, you know it goes back to my my mazda problem at the beginning of the show like, i need to remember it more yeah well you know there, there's another thing too about uh about the new leaf um that they have uh, added in that actually adds to the uh, the value proposition um the charging cable that comes with like you know all evs come with a charging cable um, but, uh, for this leaf, uh, they've added, um, what the first, uh, level one and level two charging cable. Uh, so, you know, up, up until now, you know, the charging cables that came with EVs, you know, you could plug them into a standard 110 volt outlet and, you know, it would charge, you know, it might take you a couple of days to do a full charge on the battery. Um, you know, and if you wanted faster 240 volt charging at home, you would have to go buy uh, a level two charger, a 240 volt charger and get an electrician to install it in your garage or on the side of your house. Um, you know, so you could plug it in and, and charge much faster. Um, the uh, now the, the leaf has this new cable uh, charging cable that actually has the, the level two charging management stuff built right into the cable. Uh, so, all you need actually uh, is just a standard uh, 240 volt NEMA dryer outlet in your garage. So if you've got a, if you've got access to an existing 240 volt uh, outlet in your house or in your garage, you can just plug the cable in directly to that and get the faster charging. You don't have to spend five or six hundred dollars on an additional wall charger uh, to get that faster charging. See, that's I mean, that's smart. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, and it like also it has ProPilot Assist, which, you know, is, um, it, you know, it's like autopilot, but it works and, you know, it doesn't pull you into guardrails the way uh, the Model X does. <laughs> can we can we talk about how stupid the commercials are for ProPilot Assist uh, with the Star Wars tie up? Because I, uh, I I haven't seen those. Yeah, don't. Yeah, Not, they're, they're dumb. OK. But, I mean, they have a car called the Rogue, so they want it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <sighs> 
All right. Well, I mean, I think we've uh, we covered everything on our list, and we didn't have a question that I could see. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's about it for for this episode. And since I'm not traveling anymore for until uh, I head to CES in January, uh, we should be able to do these more consistently for the next few weeks. We should, especially because I got told that I I needed to use up some vacation time that I can't roll over and they can't <laughs> give me money for it. So oh, excellent. Um, I <laughs> took a couple of weeks off, which is coming up. So we, we should not have a problem coordinating. Maybe, maybe we, we maybe we can even stockpile a couple of episodes for when. Uh, when we're traveling, when I'm traveling, yeah. I mean, we can just ramble about some bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> just make an episode, and 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 we're gonna have a couple of special guests coming up in the next couple of weeks as well, uh, which uh, hopefully you'll enjoy. Yeah. So thanks for listening. Uh, you know where to drop us a note. Uh, if you don't, it's uh, just hit us up on Twitter at WheelBearingsCast. Uh, no vowels except for the A in cast. We're on Facebook as uh, Wheelbearing Media. Um, I'm Boston underscore auto Sam yours Sam Abel Samid. Uh, I think we're, we're we're covered people know where to get in touch with us right yeah and uh, you know if you uh, if you came to the show after seeing me on Twit last week um, hope you enjoyed it and I uh, hope you keep coming back and subscribe and you know just subscribe so it shows up in your feed every week and we can count the downloads alright thanks for listening alright bye Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.